Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Also work for the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab team. Joined by my two usual co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato, who is up in Boston, Massachusetts, and Dr. Derek Miles, who is in Cincinnati, Ohio. How's it going, guys? How's it going, Mike? Good afternoon, Mike. It's been a while since we've done one of these, huh? Yeah. I have to have to get some of the rust off where it's going. When was the last time we recorded? What was the podcast? I think we're all pre-vaccinated. Probably back in January. So that would have been like, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I actually get my second dose Friday. Uh, So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. So I was telling a patient today, it's like, I've, I was reserved in January, but I'm allowing myself to be more optimistic now, but just being a little wary of the optimism. <laughs> I, I learned to stop being optimistic uh, a long time ago. I'm trying. <laughs> I'm leaning into it slightly. Well, both of you, because we're all in different locations and like the rollout's clearly been different from state to state. So I know both of you were like ahead of me by what, a month, I think? about yeah yeah i think uh mine was about three weeks ago for second dose same yeah yeah now we got uh johnson and johnson on the market and more yeah my, so. yeah my dad got johnson johnson today which i didn't even know was available and today is march 4th so this will likely be posted later than that but yeah that's, that's exciting are you drinking anything in particular there, Amato, or is it just water? Water. I'm hydrating. Oh. You know, oh. it's I, it's something I'm supposed to do, I think, after I run. I'm not sure yet, though. The hydration part? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, like, prevents cramps, right? Like, that's why you... That's what we're talking about today on the podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, cramps. <laughs> so, uh, we're going to talk about something that I know Derek's passionate about and he kind of brought this up and was like hey we should do a podcast on this so we're always up for like talking about almost anything so today we're going to talk about anterior pelvic tilt what is it does it matter uh should we worry about this is this something we should look for clinical practice with patients should you be worried about your anterior pelvic tilt while squatting or deadlifting um and if anything be done about it so Derek, I'm going to kind of turn this over to you. you know. so, so the answer to that question is no, no, and no. And there's your podcast. Um, it really comes down to this being an iteration of a lot of the conversations we have regarding technique and what is acceptable. We like to 
assign biomechanical causes to just about everything and come up with narratives on that being why things hurt. The anterior pelvic tilt side of it uh, really became prominent probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, when we started getting some more of the sports realm talking about things like cross syndrome and and tight hip flexors and weak hamstrings because we always have to blame something. But really, when we start getting into the evidence related to this, there isn't a lot, or actually there is no real support for having anterior pelvic tilt and it being disadvantageous. Now, some of this even gets into how we qualify normal, and I know this is something that we tend to belabor, but there are some studies that look at uh, what the normal distribution of anterior pelvic tilt, posterior pelvic tilt, and what neutral would be. And and when we say this, this basically is how much the anomenot bones tip forward. And the study that we've got to start out with is Harrington from 2011, where they took 120 people. And what they found was that 85% of males and 75% of females in the cohort presented with anterior pelvic tilt. And these are normal subjects. So you're, you're talking a very large swath had anterior pelvic tilt, just a baseline. Mm. Now, some of this even gets into some conversations about just the wide distribution of what would be normal for a person. And we wouldn't expect someone who was sedentary and not meeting physical activity guidelines to have the same morphology as an individual who plays an asymmetric sport and has their whole life. And there is a lot of this extrapolation of we we all think every lifter should be the Vitruvian man. And that just really isn't the case. It, there are variances in how we all are going to perform. And it turns out that having a little bit of anterior pelvic tilt isn't necessarily anything that you need to worry about. I, I think some of the problem we'll see, and I'm sure we'll get into the discussions of, is, is the line of demarcation of when we do need to intervene. And what we see a lot in the lifting community is, you know, you see this one video of someone doing a pull or doing a squat, and it certainly doesn't look ideal, but then you start getting all of the comments in Snap City, pick whatever thing we're going to talk about, and there just isn't a lot of evidence to substantiate those claims. Mm -hmm. So, Derek, can you, like, your pelvis is a bowl, right? And in this bowl is some water. And you don't want the water to spill out of the front or out of the, the back. What, what, what do like people mean when they talk about this? Well, so there is this ideal of neutral. And to that analogy, and I haven't heard that in 15 years, so thanks for giving me flashbacks. Uh, yeah, it really is <laughs> looking at neutral or normal as a point instead of a spectrum. And really, when you look at us, like doing a lot of daily movements, you're going to have variances in to that analogy. Like if you're keeping the water in the bowl the whole day, you're probably not moving too much. And like, you're going to move in different ways. And I think a lot of times we like to extrapolate these things that are done in well-lit biomechanical labs to our activities of daily living. Like prior to this podcast, I was out raking leaves and doing some yard work. 
And knowing we were on this topic today, I couldn't help but laugh as I'm like bending down to put leaves in and like picturing in my mind, if I were trying to maintain like a neutral pelvis as I was doing this, how ridiculous I would look to all of my neighbors. Do, do you know which way the water poured out? Like, were you mostly to the front or the back or the side? Dude, I was splashing stuff everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, like, how they decided why the... And because the way I was taught it was, like, you look at the level of the ASIS and the PSIS. And who decided that those points or those landmarks needed to be in the same, like, cardinal plane? Because I, I don't... I remember taking that at face value in school, but I don't remember asking why that those points needed to be on the same level. I, I don't see like why that needs to be an anatomical like explanation. Because it sounds cool it okay. is likely the answer to it. Um, you know, there are, are all these different schools of thought, and really, it, it's funny you mentioned that because some of the interesting discussion even goes into how we measure like pelvic tilt. And if you're using things like palpation as an assessment, so you have two bony prominences that people typically will use your anterior superior iliac spine and your posterior superior iliac spine, the the two big bony prominences on the front and back of your hip. And what it turns out is that you can easily have your thumb on someone's PSIS and give yourself the illusion of, you know, one anomaly being rotated, or you can make yourself see things that aren't really there. Um, the way I, I was thinking about it, when you're talking about bony landmarks, it would be the equivalent of someone saying like, well, I need you to be in Colorado and you're like, okay, that's fine. But one of us may be in Denver and one of us may be in Aurora. So for the the set we're talking about, like mm-hmm. it doesn't tell us how far apart we are, even though we're in the same set. And, and that really is how a big approach to like these palpation analysis are. And I, I realized for the listeners in Colorado, those two places I listed are actually pretty close, but drive there with traffic. Um, I wouldn't so, know, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when we're talking about even assessing this, we're not that good at it. And it gets into even sometimes these conversations. If you look at a lot of schools of thought, a lot of the way that we're taught to diagnose is based on the subjective. So if someone comes in and they say, my right leg hurts when I do this and when I side bend to one side, I'm sure according to some classification systems, they're like, oh, that's likely an anterior pelvic tilt problem. And when you take that subjective away and then you start looking at like inner examiner reliability and intra examiner reliability, it's awful. So it, it really is. Can you, def- dic- can you define each of those? Sorry. So it's, if you take the same measurement, so if I measure someone and then I go back and measure that same person again, or if all three of us were to take the measurements, it's how much we agree. And really out of that, it just shows how much that the subjective side of things really influences us. And 
if you're getting down to kind of the the just straight nuts and bolts of this, there are some studies where they looked at it uh, just from the most anatomical way possible. And the one that you often hear cited is Priest from 2008. And it's a cadaver study, so I, I understand the limitations there. But for the purposes of this, I think it does raise some interesting points in that they looked at the anominate side to side on a cadaver and found that there was a variance of zero to 23 degrees in the side to side positioning of the anominates. And, and the mean was 13 degrees. So a, a lot of what we're seeing, you know, it, it could just be the normal adaptation to what's going on. Now it, it's, Kind of an interesting discussion, and I'm going to show my bias towards some of my youth training stuff here, um, in that I certainly think that our youth athletes should be athletes way longer than they currently are before picking just one sport. But to expect someone who did a sport that may have been asymmetrical to go into something like powerlifting where it's not, it's pretty uh -huh. symmetrical. Um, and then to not have some subtle differences is just kind of hilarious. And, you know, we, we carry a lot of these experiences into what we're doing later. And now over time, I would expect that athlete to kind of morph into a more powerlifting set of skills but even then, there's the conversation of, like, how far into that specificity do we really need to go? So what's the usual, like, um, risk here, right? Thought is, oh, you have tilt either, you know, we're kind of focusing somewhat on anterior. Could go posterior as well. And then people talk about things like butt wink and so on and so forth. What's the risk? Like, what are people worried about with this happening? They're worried about whatever the guru told them to worry about that day. Um, it's, you know, the, if you look at things associated with it, I doing the research for this, the, if I wrote down everything that got blamed on some type of pelvic tilt, it, it would be like a, a dissertation into itself. And, you know, everything from a herniated disc to, you know, if you have too much anterior pelvic tilt, you're going to get a spondylolisthesis to uh, if you sprint with anterior pelvic tilt, you're going to pull a hamstring. And, and none of this stuff is really substantiated. And it's more complex than that. Now, that being said, I'm not being nihilistic in saying like, it doesn't matter at all. YOLO, go do whatever you want under maximum load. The question comes down to when do I need to intervene on this? And what we see a lot of times is you, you get novice or even intermediate lifters who are so concerned with things looking perfect or their definition of perfect or what some coach told them is perfect that they can't progress because they're limiting themselves according to the technical constraints. And that's one of the bigger issues when we're talking about things like anterior pelvic tilt. It is okay to have some variation away from it. And, you know, none of us, if we go through a squat session, do all of our reps look perfect. It's just most of the time, the one we put up on Instagram is the prettiest one we had of the day and not the one where we got up on our toes or the bar was shifted a little bit to the left. 
But, you know, it happens and somehow we all tend to survive the vast majority of those reps where it does. Yeah, I think it operates from like a really kind of, I don't, felicitous probably isn't the best word because I think most people have good intentions, but just kind of some, you know, flawed thinking on the topic of like, oh, we see this happening, like dynamic motion of the spine or changing in positions and this must somehow be bad. But the reality of it is, is like, our spines move through all types of ranges of motion and daily living, whether we're aware of the situation or not. And so it's like, can we create these parameters in which more risk for something like low back pain or something else? But then, like you said, like the data is really just not there to demonstrate this as a meaningful risk factor that a needs screened on people, which is how I was trained, right? Like we should be checking this on people, especially if they're reporting to clinic with low back pain then I should go over there and like try to palpate PSIS and then I should try to do the, the, uh, I've not done this in so long. I always forget the name of the Brindenburg test, right? Where you put your hand at PSIS and have them lift up a leg each side. And then you're seeing like, Oh, does the pelvis drop on one side versus the other? And then going through all of that and then looking at like, can they go through anterior and posterior pelvic tilt and looking at them from the side of like dropping a plumb line from the ear to the, the ankle and seeing like, are they tilted a certain way? And then that was supposedly something like you could correct with joint manipulations, or you could do like K-tape, or you could do strengthening exercises to correct the tilt issue because that's the problem. That's why you're in pain or it's going to lead to future pain. Can you talk about some of that? I know you've mentioned briefly, like a little bit on the assessments, like we're not, that doesn't really lead us anywhere and it's not very meaningful and our kind of reliability for those assessments are great. But what about then the interventions that are then kind of given to people to, to correct the supposed problem? You know, to my knowledge, looking through the evidence on this, there has never been a study pre and post intervention that has shown a large magnitude effect of change. And really, even then, I, I personally would uh, guess that there would not be a large correlation with like whatever deficit outcome we're going to choose out of it. Um, I know specific to the Trendelenburg test, there are some papers that looked at that in relation to uh, hip weakness, which is one of the things we often talk about. And it demonstrated that there wasn't uh, much correlation really between having a positive Trendelenburg and hip abductor strength with a handheld dynamometer. I can't remember the author of that off the top of my head right now. Um, but this gets into just some of the history of rehab, I would say, in this thought of going through stabilization programs and that we need to activate individual muscles. And, you know, I think even in the anterior pelvic tilt conversation, you almost have to get into the transverse abdominus world as well, as much as I don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we need to activate this certain muscle when, if you look at some of the papers, uh, there's a great review by Worth uh, talking about compound exercises versus isolated exercises. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny when you talk about like activating a transverse abdominus as though like make the exercise a little bit heavier and I promise you, you will fire that. And to think there is this like tight definition of range in which a very specific muscle should be firing um, is a little farcical, especially when we're talking about trunk muscles and like quote unquote stabilization of the spine. 
Yeah, that was part of my schooling. And yeah. we were under the impression that, and, and we usually were taught how to palpate and teach transverse abdominis activation, like in a supine knee bent position to put them in more posterior pelvic tilt because then it would change some of the length tension relationships of the muscles. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that because you would teach them in that position and you would advance the positions that you would have them contract the muscle in. And it was thought that the more anterior tilt that you got in, the harder it was. I mean, I know active research projects going on right now that uh, supposedly think you can palpate individual lumbar level of multifidi activation. And when oh, you're... Yeah. We, we were taught that. And there's just no evidence to support that at all. And um, if you get into uh, some of the papers, uh, they'll even say that we're not even that good at it, like palpating directly on a spinous process, much less multifidi as yeah. a small muscle sitting out to the side. And to think that we can do that, it just perpetuates this narrative of if we get this arbitrary muscle stronger, it is going to increase outcomes. And it's kind of a hilarious paradox when we start really talking about it because anterior pelvic tilt and like spinal neutral as well, the, a lot of the narrative that comes out of this is if you're in quote unquote neutral, it decreases stress on the spine. Well, cool. But like, in what instance do we ever get better by minimizing stress at anything? And I think we forget a lot of times, like if you want a system to get more resilient, there needs to be stress there. But there's also this like thought that for some reason you only have like X number of loads before, you know, something's got to give. And that's just one objectively wrong because it turns out like we're pretty good at adapting to load. And it just, a lot of the claims are way too brazen in their level of certainty. I think where I get lost with this is like, let's say, and we don't have this to my knowledge, uh, but feel free uh, to correct me. But let's say we were like, yeah, this is a risk factor. Like, okay, cool. What the hell do we do about it? Like, do we have any meaningful interventions to actually influence, you know, anterior pelvic tilt in a meaningful way long-term? And that would seem to be based on what we've like already talked about in the data is like, no. So even if we agreed like, yeah, this is something we should pay attention to and correct, it doesn't turn out that we can do anything meaningful about it long-term. So it's like, we're just kind of spinning our wheels and creating problems for folks and then leaving them in that no man's land area of like, I've got this issue I can't fix. Well, I I can say with a high degree of certainty that uh, things like a bird dog or a bridge isn't going to be a magical fix to suddenly change a pelvic tilt. But, you know, that's not a hard research design to try and pull off. But then you still have issues to where, you know, if you're once again, if going back to it, if you're using palpation as your assessment tool, yeah. You, you, you've already lost <laughs> because mm-hmm. yeah. like it, it just isn't good for checking those types of things. And even then, you know, let's say we take someone to a biomechanics lab 
and we put reflective markers on them and they're in the Vicon system. We're, we're going ham at this. It, it still gets into that. Like, well, where did I put my marker on the PSIS? And the, when we're talking about things, yeah. Well, but when we're talking about things where we're trying to say like two to three degrees is significant. I mean, it, that's not hard to be within that margin of error on where you place your marker. And I, I think that's like, this is a hard thing to study. And yeah. I think that gets lost in the conversation. A lot of times, if we're not really good at palpating it, um, there is a high prevalence in the healthy population and we don't really have a good standard. Like we might've just created our own boogeyman. Yeah. Oh yeah. I totally agree. Like the frustrating thing for me is talking outcomes with folks. Cause it's like, Oh, we want to research this. I'm like, cool. What's your outcome that you directly influenced uh, anterior or posterior pelvic tilt? Or you directly influence pain, which we know we can influence outcome quite easily with almost anything that we do, depending on a whole host of factors or disability, which we can also influence with a whole host of interventions. So if we're not directly affecting the outcome of interest, which is the finding of anterior pelvic tilt, but we're having all of these proxy outcomes of pain and have we just, you know, self-perpetuated a supposed problem and then got positive outcomes and assumed that we're doing what we're supposed to do because of those proxy positive outcomes. And so it's like, what are we trying to, and are we meaningfully affect them directly? Yeah. And I think that's always enticing as in school. And when you're like a student and you go into like new grad life is like, you learn these tricks that make people feel better, but you think the trick was specific, but the trick is maybe more non-specific. But yeah, you have someone who's experiencing low back pain and you put them in like a 90-90 position and you tilt their pelvis posteriorly and they feel better in that position and then you run with it. But you could have just like changed positions or got them moving and that was the effect. And and this is where... Yeah, Mike. I was just going to say, I wouldn't even have an issue if someone were like dealing with low back pain and you're like, hey, let's just go through some flexion extension cycles. I wouldn't care. It's the narrative that gets attached to it. It's yeah. like, oh, you're, that's my problem. Like that could be a starting point for some people. Oh, no. Yeah, I agree. And that, sometimes a lot of people do bridges or something like what, what Derek had mentioned, but it's not because yeah. I'm trying to change their anterior pelvic tilt and I, that doesn't come up. But yeah. Yeah, that's that's the interesting part about it'll reinforce whatever narrative you were taught you were taught because it works or you think yeah. it works well and that's that whole equipoise thing of like how much do i think an intervention is going to work and what i'll say you know as a clinician i, I would love to like have evidence saying anterior pelvic tilt was a thing because God, that would make my life easier. Like, and, yeah. but it's just not there. It's more complex than that. And I think that's the, the bigger issue is the, the certainty that gets attached to a lot of these things. And yeah. it's interesting from a coaching standpoint, and I would love to hear y'all's take on this and that, a lot of times um, this kind of gets into that building relationship with your athlete conversation, because I have athletes that their squat certainly still has a lot of technical components that we need to address. 
and, and a lot of them, you know, are more novice type lifters. Um, but they'll send me a video and be like, this looks awesome because it looks better than it did two weeks ago. And we're addressing the number one thing we need to work on right now. Mm-hmm. Now, if so, to me, it looks great. Now, if they post it on Instagram to people who want to come in and talk about it, well, they're going to have technical deficits because yeah, they're, they're learning how to do this. That doesn't make it necessarily bad. They're learning how to do this. Yeah. Yeah. We answered a lot of like, go ahead and model. Oh, no, I was going to say like, I, yeah, you need error to learn. And you, when you, what we define as error is going to be on a coach's eye, but yeah, I, and I always stray away from a lot of internal queuing anyway. So I'll always err on the side of what kind of constraints am I applying to the movement? It could just be literally a pause squat if I really want them to kind of like own that bottom position and not rush it and come out of it. But I'm not talking about what their pelvis should look like in the bottom of the squat. I think I mostly teach a, like a task constraint led approach. So it's just like, okay, you've never squatted like barbell back squat. You squatted because you've sat down and taken a crap at some point in your life and then stood back up or you were watching TV on your couch and stood up. So for the most part, you have squatted before, but let's say we want to do like a high bar back squat or a low bar back squat. Then we have, you know, constraints to place on how to complete that task. But for the most part, like uh, I get this question regularly. I'm like, I say very little when someone's learning a task. I'm like, I may demonstrate it once or twice and then I let them kind of try it out. And I expect there to be a lot of noise for lack of a better word in the system while they're trying to complete the movement and learn it. And then, you know, depending on the personality type, they need uh, more reinforcement than someone else or someone else may be able to do it and go through a series of 10 reps. And I'm like, what'd you think? And they're like, feels awkward. And I'm like, yeah, that typically is how these things go in the beginning stages. And then as they get more reps under their belt, they kind of normalize how they want to complete the movement for them to meet the constraints we've placed on the task. Uh, But it's very rare that I'm like, I, I can't even remember the last time I would have cued someone like pelvic position in a squat. Like that's just not even something that enters my mind. I'm yeah, going to say can't the last time I said that. Yeah. I'm probably just going to guess 2012. Yeah. I think it would be school. Maybe I, I yeah. think it would have probably been like my doctorate program would have been the last time that would have entered my thought process. And, you know, it's interesting even when we start looking at, at some of these definitions and what's, hilarious is if you sit here and uh, like ask yourself to define quote unquote good posture and then go back and read your definition and just look at how ambiguous likely most of the things you just wrote down actually are. And there was uh, in, in researching for this, there was one sentence that kind of made me laugh a little bit. Um, it was a paper by Brunel and there definition of good posture was to be in a state of muscular and skeletal balance, which protects the supporting structures of the body against injury or progressive deformity. And like that legitimately is like a water is the essence of wetness. State of balance. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So good posture. So a state of muscular and skeletal balance. Okay. So what's the parameters of that? And I'm not just asking for a point. I need the standard deviations. which protects the supporting structures of the body. Okay. Um, Turns out like if you want to get better at protecting a system, you got to stress it. 
Neither so yeah. yeah, so like does so good posture is loaded. Cool. I, I can get down with that definition, but like I, I feel like a lot of these definitions is like they expect us to live in like zero G. Yeah. Without the concessions that like turns out living on the space station is pretty awful for your muscular skeletal <laughs> system. Right. Um, well, hence they have like uh maybe remember the video of I think we shared this in the Barbell Medicine group or somebody did, of dude up in space like deadlifting and squatting on however they could like rig up the equipment on like uh-huh. pneumatic and stuff to do it. Uh-huh. But even then, like there's a sentence from the conclusions of Fenwick 2009 that made me laugh just as hard. It's when prescribing core exercises, those wishing to spare the low back may choose the inverted row. Well, what the hell am I sparing it from? Like, so, but what's hilarious. So let's say, let's just say for the sake of argument, like let's just run this thought experiment out and say that I have quote unquote spared your low back. Okay, cool. So we got your quad stronger. We got your hamstring stronger. We got your glutes stronger. Pick a couple other muscles. We got them stronger. And then I'm going to have you do a compound dynamic task. Where is our weak link under that logic? Like it's like you've basically become your own problem under this definition. Like why would I want to spare anything? Like if I want it more resilient, I sure as hell need to stress it in some capacity. But that, that's the thing, right? It, maybe I'm representing the argument wrong, but I feel like what I've heard is like your back is inherently the weak link. So you need to protect it. So then we don't load it. Wouldn't you want to strengthen the weak link? Like that doesn't make any sense, but that's usually the argument I hear. Well, what's hilarious is like this sounds like going through this conversation, like the operational definition of learned helplessness. Like yeah. if you if you tell someone they're stupid, they start performing worse. And it's like, well, if you keep telling someone their back is weak, well, they're not going to go stress their back. And all of a sudden, guess what? Their back is weak. Like there's no messaging of resilience out of this. It's the, we need to protect this arbitrary thing. Like as much as I would have loved for the Olympics to have went down last year, like the greatest thing about the Olympics being canceled is I didn't have to spend two months debunking whatever the passive modality du jour every four years and all this stuff where people are just trying to extrapolate why all these freak athletes have something go wrong because of this one weird thing that we picked out. I'm I'm trying to envision like what would have been this year. I can't even like, I'm curious. I I think it probably would have been dry needling if you really want to know. Really? Like that would have because yeah. it was cupping uh what was it, twenty sixteen? The swimming. Well, yeah. The, yeah, so we had K tape in twenty eight and twenty twelve, cupping uh in twenty sixteen. And basically, so in order to qualify, you basically have to be bright. If it leaves a mark, that's a bonus. Yeah. And you know, if you can attach something to it to where like people see it for hours on end. Like, you know, in it's, I think the, the Olympics and and likely even pro sports in general sets back over all MSK progress on a cyclical nature, because, you know, I would love to devote my time 
to just reading about like physical activity, some hip research and not having spent probably the 30 hours this week that I have working on a presentation on why K tape is a waste of time. But it's the, you know, Bertolini's law or whatever to where it takes 10 times the magnitude to refute the the story. And like how, how great would it be if the average lifter was ignorant of the concept of anterior pelvic tilt being harmful? Yeah. And it's just one less thing they have to worry about. Yeah. You nailed it. Like we're not saying like these things, like, anterior and posterior pelvic tilt isn't a thing like obviously your spine goes through various positions and movements throughout daily living and training and you can't really do much about it in a meaningful way long term in most situations but the kind of crux of this is like we just don't need to worry about this right like we don't need to be creating these kind of pathological kinesiopathological narratives around people's spines and pain and dysfunction to the point that that's something they have to think about, like, oh, I need to be careful on my squat today. I don't want to load my spine or the deadlift, or I don't want to be in a particular position. It's the kind of fear that comes out of these false narratives that don't really lead us anywhere and actually can be quite damaging to people. Yeah. I think it just flies in the face of like what high performance is too. Like if you're thinking about where your pelvis is in space while you're squatting, I don't know. You're probably not squatting <laughs> a lot of weight or you're not, fo- I don't know. I just don't get it. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I know like lifting, there's not a lot of moving parts. So you have time to think about things and it could be a little more cerebral like that, but I don't know. I don't know. Like I started weightlifting. I couldn't even imagine like thinking about where my pelvis is at as I receive a snatch overhead. Yeah, like it just like somehow I'm, I'm down on the ground and first pull it's set up. And then suddenly I'm in a squat position overhead and I really don't know what happened in between. It's kind of magic. I think like that's my only option to go with <laughs> because I'm not really thinking about anything. Like, Yeah. I joke with athletes all the time that I want them Einstein during their setup and a crow magnum while they're working. And it, like you, you can't think and perform at a high level. Yeah. Like it, it's just like, it, it turns out humans are not really good at dual task. And, you know, if I'm trying to have a maximal effort lift or even like a hard effort lift, I can't be thinking about four things. Yeah. yeah. Anytime I've ever done like a max out, like time just ex- ceased to exist. Like you did the lift and it was over and you're like, I don't know what happened. But that's what you want. Like that's, yeah. 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 <laughs> could you could you imagine if you were like, am I a millimeter far, <laughs> Yeah, not everything happens at that max intensity, but yeah. I think about it a lot with running recently because running is a very like quiet activity. And I was talking to Derek before we started this because he was saying yeah, you rode for an hour and a half. And I was like, what do you think about when you row for an hour and a half? <laughs> Suffering. <laughs> yeah, but the you know, same thing with running where it's like I try not to think of my body too much. I just try to keep a you know like a certain cadence. Yeah. That's my only cue. Uh, otherwise I'm just trying to like glide along and then my thoughts go anywhere. Like I was listening to Wu Tang today and just thinking of like can i name all the wu-tang members i don't know i might i might miss a few you were but, contemplating uh, what level of cervical lordosis you actually would break your neck exactly yeah. i was thinking like <laughs> rizza was talking about protect your neck and i was like oh yeah yeah <laughs> anyway huh. yeah well and 
but I, I think part of the issue with a lot of these conversations in is there's just not evidence to support the just underlying narrative and the i think part of kind of your come up and as a clinician is getting into the evidence and kind of running face first into some of these claims and being like oh another one bites the dust and just seeing that there is a huge gap between the asymmetry or, or between um sorry the certainty with which people say something is a thing and the actual evidence to support it being a thing. Yeah. And it turns out that it's a lot easier to say what isn't an issue than to really identify what is the issue because it rarely is just one thing. It's just like small slivers summing up to something. And, you know, once again, this isn't me saying go RPE 10 yourself in a Jefferson curl four times this week. You know, in it's there, it's probably not the anterior pelvic tilt or the posterior pelvic tilt. It's probably the poor life decisions in your program. Yeah, I think the hard part and like why we're here is because people speak these things into existence, like well before we have any supportive data. Like again, like show me some type of valid evidence to say, here's our outcome, which is whatever, pain, disability, uh, anterior pelvic tilt being a problem. And then show the risk factors correlated to that and then demonstrate how we can meaningfully impact that as a risk factor uh, to affect those outcomes. But it just doesn't seem to be there. Like, it's just not so straightforward. And especially when you get into, like, low back pain literature, like, it's just not – I have yet to read anything that looks at risk factors. And I'm like, anterior pelvic tilt, that's it. That's what we all should be trying to affect for low back pain. We've solved it. God, I, w- I like you said earlier, I wish that were the case because you come in with low back pain. I'm like, Amper- anterior pelvic tilt. Like all we got to do is correct that. It's yeah. God, that would be amazing. Uh, But really in general with all of this, it's, it's so, or I guess I should say it's no wonder that we have these issues with getting people to train and be active because like, if squatting is bad for your back or, or sprinting apparently is bad for your back as well. If you're in a anterior pelvic tilt, you know, uh, running is bad for your knees. Like at a certain point you're like, well, what the hell is okay. And it turns out all of this stuff is okay. And especially if you're learning something and just beginning at it, like to expect yourself to look great while you're doing it, it is not the best approach, but I also think we like these things like anterior pelvic tilt or, you know, pick whatever, because it gets us as clinicians out of having the hard conversations. And the hard conversations sometimes are like, Hey, you have painted yourself too narrow of a window on what you think is acceptable. Or, you know, maybe this isn't necessarily a, lifting problem there may be some things with your nutrition and sleep and stress management that are going to factor into this or the hardest conversation of all hey dude you don't need to add five pounds every week what and but if we can just blame it on these pathoanatomical things then it gets us out of having to have a real conversation with the person in front of us 
it, it would be nice to just be able to say like, yeah, dude, it's this one thing, go address it. Um, you'll be fine. But a lot of times you have to get into the weeds with the person in front of you and, and have that, like, what are the contributing factors to this? Yeah. I was like, um, I've had this conversation a few times these past couple of weeks. And then like, I was doing this when I was teaching this morning, uh, we were talking about pain and low back pain actually. It's like, I started drawing like a spider web net of bubbles of like influential factors. And like, you're not going to find me draw a bubble around anterior pelvic tilt for like low back pain or something. It's going to be like dosage of activity, person's life stressors, uh, work related stressors, sleep, nutrition, uh, stuff like that. Like that, those are like easy, tangible, influential variables that we have supportive data for to be like, yeah, we should probably try to affect this. But anterior pelvic tilt's not there in my bubble. Yeah, it comes down to what's modifiable in you know in our skill set. Right. Well, well, what if what if like uh, anterior pelvic tilt came out to be a risk factor? And we're like, fuck, it's not modifiable. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of risk factors that are not modifiable. Like, you know. Yeah. What do we do with that? Did like, you have childhood trauma? You know, like, right. you can identify it, but, you know, and you can have someone talk about it and refer out, but. Right. Yeah. That's, you can't change the past. Uh, that's what I want to see. No. Go ahead. Derek. God. No, my, my favorite thing, and I've spent way too much mental effort contemplating this, is the whole conversation around herniated discs and people talking about how they can, like, fix them. I'm like, all right, if you can do that with your passive modality, that's a really easy pre-post study to do. Like, all right, show, show me that your magical thing caused a change here. Yep. But that study doesn't exist. And because it when it, it I can tell you what the results of it would be. Yeah. Um, when we the data we do have on discs, like kind of resolving, right? We're ta- we're not talking like oh, you came in with a lumbar disc herniation at L four L five, and I did an intervention, uh, passive intervention, not surgical, and it corrected instantly. No, the, the data is like nine months, right? Depending on the severity, whether it's like protruded or sequestered or extruded, you're talking weeks to months of self resolution. So if you've got that intervention. It's like, man, I'm going to fix that in- instantly. Please do a pre and post MRI, and I want to see this. I will, I will immediately implement it into my clinic. The problem there, and I think this is worth touching on from a research method standpoint, is you would have individuals now do a pre and post, but see the person for nine months, and right. then claim their intervention and, and not have a control group in there, right? And then you know, go mail twelve copies to different clinics around mm-hmm. natural history. And, Anyway. Yeah. Well, and this gets into, you know, and I really don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, but oh, I'm ready. Let's even, do it. Yeah. Even just like study design. And it, there was a discussion the other day regarding uh, my hip piece that I had just written in uh, clearing the lumbar spine. Oh, yeah. And someone had put up a study about doing repeated movements in the lumbar spine and it relieves some of the hip symptoms. So the spine was the cause. It's like, that's not how research design works. You can't infer that that was the causative thing. What you can infer was that a repeated motion caused a change somewhere else. Uh, one of my favorite hilarious things that got published is there's a study from probably five or six years ago 
one doing suboccipital release. So basically pulling on someone's head and their uh, hamstring length changing. And, you know, there's no plausibility to that whatsoever. It just turns out like, if I want your hamstring to move an extra five degrees, like I can get it no matter what I do. Like it's, I've been saying uh, for years, I want a uh, non-randomized controlled underpowered study of the principles of reflective viscous fluid for low back pain um, and just do a six week trial and show that most people got better and then start marketing my glitter cream. And, you know, it's just like, if you know how natural history works, I can literally put glitter on you and get a decent result and then say that like my thing was what did it. So look for uh, barbell medicine glitter coming out soon. Glitter cream. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the problem like, right. Like that would sell. And Mm -hmm. so then it's like, you know, we're, you're put into a position of like uh, ethics and morality. Like, should I be doing this? Is this appropriate? Is this okay? Uh, All of this in what happens is, uh, like, uh, I really wish I could remember the author of this study because it, it is something that I've quoted a few times. And if anyone listened to this podcast knows it, please kick it my way. Um, but they looked at regional techniques for rotator cuff repairs. And they found that it had nothing to do with what the evidence recommended for the surgery, but there was like a taxonomy according to where you were trained. And like, I think the same thing could be said for a lot of rehabilitation practices it's not so much what the evidence says it's where you went to school because that is the thing you were taught and it was just accepted to be so and you know there are certainly programs within the united states where you know you might come out thinking you're a movement systems expert when really if you look at what that entails it's one of the most laughable things i think physical therapy has tried to move forward with yeah, it makes me think, like, I wonder how many of my classmates are still doing, you know, treatment-based classification eight years down mm-hmm. the road. If they're still putting people into stabilization subgroups or NIP subgroups. Because it'd be, it'd be easy. Who are. Yeah, it'd be easy to continue with that because, uh, again, like, it works. Mm-hmm. You get positive outcomes, right? Like, yeah. And so, yeah. And so the, the argument then is, is like, well, what's the harm? You know, right? That's usually what people say to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at, at least with TBC, I, I would say for the most part, uh, I consider that to be pretty neutral just because yeah. everyone ends up in the stabilization category. Eventually, it just depends on the clinician and how willing you are to push stabilization. Yeah. But it is kind of funny looking back on uh even how I taught the traction category and like knowing what I know now about some of the conversations around pain, I likely said some very stupid things. Oh, I'm curious now. What do you mean traction? So there was, yeah. So treatment based classification had manipulation, centralization, stabilization, and traction. And traction was basically the uh, not otherwise classified category. So if someone was having ridiculous symptoms and wasn't responding to centralization, um, didn't meet the criteria for the manipulation, and then uh, wasn't ready for stabilization program, you put them on traction. So essentially, it was like the go lay down in a quiet dark room for a little while 
treatment paradigm. Yeah, get get your legs pulled on. Yeah. Um, I think what people forget, and I'm just remember this is a tangent, but I think what people forget about that system as well is that there was like a stage one, and mm-hmm. stage one was that, and stage two and three were strength and endurance return to functional activities. And um, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, people forget about that. But that was the later papers. Yeah, uh, is when they started because I think initially it made sense. And then they were like, hold on, there's more layers to this. Mm-hmm. And the kind of final TBC before it got like really called into question uh, is where they really started getting into some of the psychometric profile stuff. And yeah. I think treatment-based classification actually evolved into some of the research that ended up producing things like the Oz or the OzPro and okay. uh, the start back tool. Let's say a start back tool will get slumped into there because then it gets screened yeah. almost like out. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, I dropped out and totally missed that explanation. We solved the meaning of life. Yeah. Sweet. We're going back to 40, TBC. 42. Yeah. But, I mean, we're all going to, like, uh, you can try to minimize it, especially as you, like, get more involved in reading on this stuff. But we're all going to buy into things at some point where we're, like, you know, that probably wasn't the smartest belief to hold. It is more of just like having the ability to recognize that and move past it and hopefully try to be a little more aware and potentially like guarded before you buy into the next thing. Um, and that's hard, but it helps like having people around you to be like, yeah, I don't know about that, man. And, you know, kind of questioning it a little bit. Yeah. We'll see what kind of stuff gets stirred up with the heavy flow stuff around the monopoly. I lost faith like two years ago. I think I recall like Derek and I had this conversation. We were arguing over something like I think the meaningfulness of finding uh, ultrasound with like blood flow changes. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's like the ultimately what sparked that debate and it lasted for like a month. And I don't think we changed either of each other's minds, but I think it was then when I was like, I don't know about this heavy slow resistance thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it, always is going to come down to it's more complicated than what most people would say it is. But I think there's also a certain like levity in after you've ran face first into a wall on an idea about 10, a hundred times, like whenever the counter evidence starts coming up, you just go, well, there goes another one. And then you just, you learn to just, pivot a little bit to, to where the evidence is kind of pointing you at the time, instead of just digging in and saying, well, I don't have the right answer now. So I need the level five certification. Yeah. yeah. I think it comes from a place of tr- trying to make something complex into a simple thing. And I don't think it's a bad, I don't think it's a bad uh, direction to take. You just need to always, uh, remember that it is complex and it's okay to have simple ways of analyzing and then trying to uh, implement a treatment. But I think the way we simplify things is a little different than trying to simplify it to an anterior pelvic tilt. Do you guys think something I've thought about a lot lately, uh, especially like talking to Austin, right. in internal medicine. um, And then with like COVID-19 too, do you guys think a lot of this is our desire to look for like causal etiology and have a very direct treatment intervention. Like if you get an infection and it's, you know, bacterial or like here's an antibiotic and it could be broad based or specific to my understanding. 
Is that what we're trying to make MSK care into? And do you guys think that's like feasible? Yes. I think, uh, I think when most people sign up to go into the MSK realm, we like to think of ourselves as carpenters and then we hopefully realize at some point that you're more of a bartender and it's not so much about like X plus Y equals Z. It's like a quadratic equation with imaginary numbers in it. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. I, uh, I was thinking back and, and this is not MSK, but I was thinking back to the last year I was interested in looking at, uh, hypertension and effects of exercise and hypertension, it's really complicated. Like trying to understand the physiology of how hypertension improves with exercise is still like a little unknown. And I was thinking about how I screened someone a couple months ago for low back pain who had, you know, essentially stage one hypertension. And our my intervention or my advice was just let's get more steps in each day. And why like, what about you right now in terms of your life with the pandemic? Like, what seems to be in the way of you getting maybe some more steps? And, you know, a couple months later, adding to the 4,000 steps a day and her blood pressure is, like, down, like, 10 to 15 points. So, like, a simple method, but a really complicated yeah. problem because hypertension is really complicated when you look at, like, causal mechanisms. So, I don't, I don't know. I guess that tangent was just about, like, Again, recognizing complexity, but like you can still use simple uh, yeah. treatments, treatment strategies that give people control. Mm-hmm. I just don't know where like our search for causal etiology and like the MSK world, barring like obvious situations like you fell and fractured your femur. Uh, I don't know where this like leads us other than like what we're currently talking about. Like just, we keep trying to create problems to fix without like reason to believe that's truly a problem because we want these very specific interventions to fix that problem. Um, And it just doesn't turn out to be, at least in our realm, uh, from what I can tell, it doesn't work that way. And you could do a lot of things to get the outcomes you're looking for, but it's more about like your point of motto is like you clearly empowered that person, like go take some steps, probably both figuratively and literally that's going to impact them long-term in a meaningful way while like natural history just takes place with low back pain. Like a lot of times it does, but you also didn't do all these other things we've been talking about, which is layering in all these unnecessary problems to like create for them that then sells an intervention. Yeah. I think of the Scott Morrison quote, I don't know if it's his quote, but this comes from his course where it's like what gets measured gets managed and what gets mismeasured gets mismanaged. And, you know, what we decide to measure in the clinic is what we're going to try to change. So you have to know, like, why are you deciding to measure that? And does that measurement actually have some kind of validity? Um, and can you, yeah. reduce the, can you reduce the noise in that measurement? Which is why I don't measure a lot of stuff. But if I do measure something, it's going to try to be as clean as possible, which is usually Target. some kind of dynamometer testing or some kind of something else like that. So you're not measuring anterior pelvic tilt? They didn't come out with that version of the dynamometer yet. I'm waiting for it. Well, I don't know. Do you guys think we've like sufficiently uh, discussed anterior pelvic tilt? Have we made a meaningful impact on this topic? And we screamed into the void for an hour. No. <laughs> I'm gonna move on. From wa- I'm gonna move on from water soon. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I do. Yeah. I need to pick out a drink for tonight. 
I'm yeah. not sure what I'll make. Do you have something on like up a motto that you plan on making? Uh, not tonight, but I do think I'm going to start delving into margaritas or like more tequila based drinks since I'm just going to will summer into existence. Cause here in yeah. New England it is March, but today was 20 degrees with the wind chill. So, we're, you know, it's, we're still, we're getting there, but we're not, I'm not quite there yet. Do you want to reveal to everyone like your new favorite drink ingredient? My new favorite drink ingredient? Well, the one that like. I think Campari has been his favorite for a while. Oh, Campari, yeah. yeah. I yeah. Well, that was like my gateway. I thought <laughs> Negroni seems easy to make. It's literally like one, three, three separate equal parts and you just stir it. So that was like my gateway cocktail. But uh, I still hold it as like my uh, my day one. So yeah, check us out on Campari Boys. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's not our account. Uh Oh, but maybe we'll give them some uh, publicity. Eric, do you have any like takeaway points for the audience? Like, what's like what's like the three things that people should keep in mind about this topic and kind of take away from today's discussion? Pelvic tilt isn't something that you need to worry about in ninety-eight percent of cases. Uh, you're better off being consistent in your training and focusing on just accomplishing the task in front of you than trying to distill it down to this specific problem. And the third point would likely be that we are really good at creating problems that don't necessarily exist. This stuff is complicated, even from the research design standpoint. And we need to get better about not overly extrapolating the claims of what we say is causing or even contributing to issues that athletes face. And I'm comfortable saying that if you're coached by anyone on the pain and rehab team, um, we're probably not leading out with any conversations on pelvic tilt and unless initially broached by the athlete themselves. Yeah. I think it's a great point. Actually, we didn't say like, I don't really, I don't think Amada does either. I don't really bring this up uh, unless someone's like, what do you think about this? And like, probably wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Well, cool. Well, thank you guys for this discussion. Hopefully we'll be able to do another podcast on something in the near, like a couple months coming up. Uh, I know we're going to get questions on this. So I just wanted to put it out there for podcast listeners. The pain and rehab seminar that Derek and I did a couple weeks ago will be on the website soon. It is on its way. It's coming. Uh, we're, it's just taking a little bit longer to get things edited and then uploaded on the website where it can be purchased and downloaded. Uh, hopefully, probably in like the next two weeks, it'll be up on learn.barbellmedicine.com. Uh, for those that attended the seminar, we will send that to you directly. You don't have to repurchase that. So just in case anyone's curious. Thank you guys for tuning in today. We hope this discussion has been beneficial for you. And until next time, keep training. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. 
Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.